Welcome to Cancer Specialist Medical Minute. With Dr. Rick and Dr. Danny. That's Dr. Rick. And that's Dr. Danny, and we are excited to be back for another episode of Cancer Specialist Medical Minute. And we have a special joke today, Rick. Uh, Brenna had sent me a text earlier this week about a joke that we've never said yet on the podcast, and I'm really excited to share this with you. So So it sounds like you guys are conspiring behind my back? We are. Okay, fair enough. So I'm starting to tell everyone about the benefits of eating dried grapes. Okay. It's all about raisin awareness. Raisin awareness. Get it? (laughs) So I think the plan for this episode, once I mentally recover from that that joke, (laughs) is to talk about um, clinical research uh, and talk about it in the context kind of broadly and then also in the context within... Cancer specialists of North Florida, uh, probably this may this may go long enough. We might break this into two parts if uh, producer Brenna lets us. If she gets tired of hearing us ramble on for too long, I think we will. I think part two we're planning to have a special guest, so everyone stay tuned for part two. But I think this is going to be a two-part series. We're going to talk about, as Rick said, about what clinical research is and how we incorporate it into our clinical practice here at CSNF. We're both part of the research committee here at CSNF, uh, so we actively review trials. And first step is, you know, having meetings and discussing what are trials that we may want to open here at CSNF. But let's first talk about clinical research just generally, kind of just an overview. Clinical research is something that's highly regulated, and there's different phases of clinical trials and different types of research. Listen, before you get into the technical mumbo-jumbo, let's... Big picture, why do we need to do clinical research? Well, we need to do clinical research, Rick, to expand upon our knowledge and to try to identify either new treatments or new uh, technologies which may help patients in the future. Yeah, I think the biggest thing as a patient you want to realize is when someone recommends a treatment for you, you want hopefully would want to know, well, what's the evidence behind that? You know, a lot of things in medicine that this this term gets thrown around a lot incorrectly is, you know, it's a parachute, meaning that, well, you don't need to test parachutes because, you know, you don't want to do an experiment of people jumping out of the plane and half of them get parachutes and half of them don't. And so doctors sometimes, I think, falsely think that new medicines or new treatments are parachutes, meaning that this is so clear it's going to work, why do we even need to test it? And I think what we're what actually happens in reality is a lot of times we're not smarter than we think we are, and these things turn out to be negative, or it has a side effects we didn't know about, or maybe there's a benefit we didn't know about. And so I think big picture wise, that's the point of research is to suss out what really helps people versus what maybe doesn't help people. And I think we saw that at the beginning of the pandemic when a lot of information out there about what therapies might help you know, people infected with COVID nineteen. Let's, let's leave COVID for. Uh, no, I think we're going to talk about. Tired a of bit. hearing. Okay. But <laughs> I know Rick's, Rick's tired of talking about COVID nineteen. I get it, but it, it brought up some important uh, points that we can't recommend therapies that are not proven to to help individuals uh, without clinical research to to help understand the benefit and the potential risk of of whatever intervention that's being proposed. So 
and and that was evident, I think, to a lot of people in the U.S. and and outside the U.S. about people talking about certain treatments even prior to any being any research being done on if it would help them, you know, with their illness. So I think it was that was one of the things recently where it opened up a lot of people's eyes to the process that it takes to get something approved and to show that something's um, effective. Yeah, it's too bad we couldn't have, uh, you know, maybe thought about these things at the beginning and actually empirically tested some of these things and maybe we would have a better idea of what works and what doesn't as opposed to a hodgepodge. See, he does want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. He, he does want to talk about it. Yeah, COVID-19, he loves it. So we're, we're not going to just talk about COVID. We had a whole episode talking about COVID and vaccinations and the Delta variant. So we're going to go on and just kind of go on about what what are the processes that take place to um, you know conduct clinical trials now research is not only clinical trials there's lots of different types of research um, when we talk about clinical research a lot of time we are talking about trials now not every clinical trial is looking at a drug you know we, there may be trials that are just taking a blood sample from people and trying to identify you know things that may make them more susceptible to a disease or may make um, a difference in the future as far as identifying individuals that do better with a certain treatment or do worse with a certain treatment, you know. So a lot of different ways we can gain knowledge to try to help our patients. So, you know, one of the things people always want to know about is, you know, where, where do ideas come from for research, right? Like where do, where do, it's like where do babies come from? Like, you know, where do, where do ideas come from from research? And I think, you know, how do you generate a hypothesis or how do you generate a question? So I think there's a lot of ways to do that. You know, in, in, in clinical medicine, a lot of times it's you're either looking anecdotally at patients who with certain diseases, maybe some did this and some didn't do this, and you say, hey, did this something affect their outcome in this disease? So you can kind of, there's on-the-job questions that come up, sort of then they backtest and see if, if that thing is real. Then there's the, you know, what we think of as pharma or drug-based research where pharmaceutical companies are employing scientists to design chemicals, whether it's to, you know, target specific proteins on certain cells or to target specific viruses or bacteria, and then trying to create a chemical compound that can then be applied into people. So that's another route that research can come from. And then some of it comes from looking at, you know, databases that have already been published of outcomes for different things. And people can go back and come up with associations of did intervention X have anything to do with Y? And then you can actually test it in people in a prospective fashion. So I I don't know, Danny, do you have any thoughts about sort of, you know, big picture when people are coming up with ideas for clinical trials? How does it all start? I think to go off your last uh, point there with looking at large databases where just for uh, simple, simplistic purposes, you have a group of people all with the same condition and you look um, at a certain outcome, you know, you're looking at, you know, how long did those people survive with the illness, um, what, what treatments they received, and maybe looking at different outcomes based on the treatments they had. And so your, your questions, your clinical questions can come about after looking at these large samples of people all with the same illnesses and maybe come up with a question about, well, maybe we'll try 
this drug to combat this illness because it looked like a trend that maybe a group of individuals all got a similar treatment and had better outcomes than the individuals who got a different type of treatment. So we call that kind of retrospective research where you look back at historical data and follow it through over a number of years and see uh, what factors led to what outcomes in those people. And so the clinical trials that come about from looking at historical data come from reviewing reviewing that that historical data so yeah i i kind of look at it when we when we're in training we do a lot of at least i did i did a lot of retrospective you know looks at data for you know different diseases whether that's lymphoma or uh, different types of cancer and we you know you have a clinical question and then you look back at uh, the individuals affected by that disease and you try to answer your question and then that could bring up upon, you know, a, a thought on a new therapy or something that might generate interest in starting a different type of clinical trial where you're trying to improve upon a treatment that, that may be available. Yeah, I think it's the big picture. It's called, you know, most often I heard it phrased as sort of hypothesis generating mm-hmm. research in that you're not making a conclusion, you know, a statement of fact or conclusion that this causes that, but it at least warrants further study in a prospective randomized fashion I think is the ultimate goal is you one of the most valuable resources is you know patients commitment and willing to get on clinical trials when it gets to that phase so you don't want to be wasting their time trying to answer questions that have a low chance of working or coming out or things that are just irrelevant and won't won't change practice so I think it's a it's how we utilize these precious resources is very important and I think how you come up with these questions and what questions are being generated from those studies is extremely important. Right. And in clinical practice, we're generally not using or we're generally not performing these retrospective studies. You know, they more in an academic setting, they're, they're looking at this or... That's, but, why you have, that's why you get academic days. In exactly. You, get you don't have to work. Days off the clinic yeah. to, to look at data. <laughs> so, yeah, we don't get that, mm-hmm. that luxury. Nope. but. But yeah, there's there's different ways to conduct the trials we do in uh, in a clinic setting here. You know, you you have generally a a drug that maybe has not been studied at all in a disease, and you you first run a clinical trial to make sure it's safe to give to people. Yeah, I think that you're kind of alluding to getting into the different phases of mm-hmm. you know typical what we think of as at least I think of as sort of pharma <laughs> driven mm-hmm. medicine in terms of. Company X has a drug that they think may work in disease Y, and then I'm sure folks out there may hear phase one, phase two, phase three, and phase four. And, you know, what does that mean? Is, phase, is a phase four better than a phase one, Danny? You know, kind of right. starting what you were getting at, I think, with the safety side of things to walk us through kind of what, in general, how the listener should view the different phases of yeah. sort of drug clinical trial. Yeah, so phase one studies generally are looking at a a drug that's potentially a new drug that came out recently or a drug that just never has been studied for whatever disease it's it's aimed at at studying. So phase one, they can be organized in different ways. You have uh, these different setups where you give a certain number of individuals a drug at a particular dose, and then the dose is increased to a point where they look for safety flags to say, well, at this dose, it caused these side effects. And as long as the side effect are not serious side effects, they might increase the dose even more. Because what they're looking at is trying to see 
what's the maximum tolerated dose of that drug uh, before it causes some serious adverse reaction, which obviously all you know, clinicians do not want their you know, patients to have a serious adverse reaction to any drug, but they're trying to find the highest uh, milligram or whatever measurement of dose that can be given for a particular drug before it causes a serious side effect. And then they choose the dose of that drug based on the phase one data um, and the safety of it to then kind of go on to the next phase, which looks a little bit more at efficacy of that drug. Yeah, so I think big picture, think of phase one as sort of safety and say, right. can this drug be given in a concentration that we think it may do something and can it be given safely? Right. And then if it passes that muster and you kind of come up with what you think the right dose is then as you were getting to, right. you move into the efficacy phase or does this thing actually do <laughs> what we yeah. think it's going to do? And that's generally a phase two where you're just trying to prove it yep. in a sample of patients. I don't know if you have more... There's, you know, and, it, and within it, phase two, there's so many different subsets of phase two. There's phase two, three together trials that transition to phase three. Right. But to me, big picture of phase two is you're saying you're not comparing it necessarily to the standard of care or what patients are getting for a disease. But you're saying if I give someone with this condition and I give them this drug that we tested in phase one, does this actually benefit them? Right. Whether that's does their scan look better? Do they live longer? Do they have better quality of life? You know, there's a lot of different ways to measure, quote unquote, better. Right. But that's sort of the, the big high level way of looking at it, I think. Yeah. And I think to go off of what, what you mentioned is a phase one, two or three better trial to enroll in. Well, phase two, again, looking at efficacy of the drug, is it going to be effective? Or, it, or if it's studying a cancer, is the cancer getting better? Is it shrinking because of the therapy? And how many individuals does it cause it to shrink? And, you know, sometimes phases of studies, depending on what disease you're dealing with, you're not able to get to a phase three study in all diseases because it might be a rare disease that not a lot of individuals have. And phase three trials, and we'll get into that, it's just you have to have enough individuals who can enroll on a trial to, to enter that phase three. <laughs> and the other thing is you have to have a drug that works. And a drug that works. Because, right. you know, when you're right. splitting hairs of maybe it helps one in a million people, even if it's a common disease, no one can run a trial of millions and millions of patients. Of course. To get in, to, to prove some minuscule benefit that makes no difference to how long people live or quality of life. So I think phase two helps suss out some of that. It does, and it brings up a point, too, to not not jump to conclusions either. You know, just because a drug was effective in a Phase 2 study does not mean it's going to have that same efficacy in the Phase 3 study either. Um, and we've seen that play out a lot of the time. It's And I, I'll hesitate a little bit and say it's not just the effectiveness of the drug, because we can measure that in different ways. You can say efficacy is just the tumor shrinking. That's one point. Efficacy is it makes you live longer, you know, and that's uh, probably what a lot of patients want is they want to live longer, want to spend more time with their family. So, and that's usually teased out in the phase three portion of the studies. So, and we've seen in oncology a lot of examples of drug A gets into phase two and has really good results, gets to phase three, and the results aren't quite as good, and it might not trump the standard of care. So phase three is generally comparing a drug to the standard of care. And that may be the standard of care plus the new drug. Um, sometimes, and it's a little bit 
more, I don't want to get into the details too much, but sometimes it's a drug compared to the standard of care drug or a collection of drugs which would be used standardly for a particular disease. But so when patients think about, you know, should I enroll in a phase two, phase three study, generally speaking, when you enroll in a phase three trial, you're no matter what, you're going to get a standard of care drug plus another drug usually that they're investigating to see if it's better than what, what we have out there. How, how often do phase one trials just don't work out or phase two doesn't work out and it just gets tossed? I mean, how, do, how does that look? Yeah, phase I, I, I don't know the percentages of how often phase one uh, doesn't move on to phase two, but it, I'll tell you the reasons for it yeah, is okay. if there's big safety flags. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you have a drug that gets investigated in a phase one trial and a lot of people die on that trial, they're, they're going to not use that drug. And that sometimes even gets teased out in, in phase two or phase three trials where you have more unexpected deaths, which is, of course, you know, the, the, the biggest uh, catastrophe that can happen in trials is that you give a drug which causes more people to die. Mm-hmm. So, so that hopefully is teased out in a phase one study and even preclinical studies, which are generally maybe an animal model where they give drugs to and, and make sure that it's quote unquote safe and doesn't have any big safety flags in a different animal, whether that's a mouse, a monkey, you know, other types of animals they use in research. So, so that, that would be why a phase one maybe fizzles out really until you get into a one B study or a phase two, you don't really get the data to whether it's an effective drug for a particular disease. Yeah, I don't know. Nowadays, more, more drugs are being kind of pushed through, you know, I think efficacy is, is, you know, a little bit of a, a question mark. Yeah, it's it's a sub, it, and it shouldn't be subjective. Research isn't really subjective. It's it should be an objective measurement of an outcome. But you have drugs that are very minimally effective that get pushed onto bigger trials, and then they do this huge trial, millions of dollars, and and it and it's negative. We have a lot of negative trials in oncology. Well, and sometimes we get the pleasure of negative trials, but it still doesn't matter because the drug gets approved for use yes. and gets used. So. Yes, and then it gets pulled off the market because of something else, so who knows, but. Yeah, I think, I mean, to me, when I, I guess this is specific to oncology, but maybe applicable to other places, is the design of trials sometimes is very frustrating as someone participates in research, but generally isn't involved with the design of clinical trials. And right. you're cho- when you choose endpoints that, if you're a patient, who cares? If you're not talking about survival or you're not talking about quality of life, who cares? Uh, you know, like th- some of these endpoints for phase three trials for super expensive medicines that are gonna put the patient in financial hardship, potentially put the medical system in financial hardship. And we're talking about like improving a scan by 3% that they wouldn't, it doesn't mean anything clinically. Their patient's not feeling any better and they're not living any longer. And so I think there's a lot of, when you get into the weeds of it, at least from my point of view, I mean, I'm happy to say, I think there's a lot of kind of unfortunate trial design. There is, yeah, and, and trial design, it, it's very important in terms of um, 
having the right patients on the right studies. And, and we saw that with outcomes of immunotherapy, where you have two immunotherapies that have the same target, but have different outcomes in different trials. And it, and it doesn't make sense until you look at the details of who they had in the study and how they designed it. And uh, it, it can be frustrating because, you know, m- there's much more marketing, much more advertising that goes with oncology drugs now than 10, 20 years ago. And we always have patients asking about certain drugs that are advertised. And, you know, we want to be honest with the patient and to make sure that, you know, if we choose a drug or we choose a trial for a patient even that has a certain drug, uh, we want to make sure it makes sense for them and their disease. And everyone's a little bit different in terms of who the right patient is for the right trial. So I I do kind of choose trials and put people on trials who I think are the right candidates for it, and and not everyone's the right candidate for a particular clinical trial. And they're much more stringent now in terms of their criteria to enroll in a trial. You know, there's inclusion and exclusion criteria, which means you have to have these characteristics to enroll, but you can't have these characteristics to enroll either. So it's, uh, it's a process to get people enrolled. And I think every drug company is looking for the right patient to get the right outcomes that gets, you know, a drug approved. And I, I get that standpoint, but I think we've got to do our best to make sure we're choosing the right trials for our patients too. And that's kind of what I, what I look at. So. And it just leads into the applicability of a research finding. Because even if you have a study that shows yeah. some intervention is drug, whatever, radiation device, mm-hmm. and you show it's more successful, you go back and you look at the inclusion criteria of that patient population. Oh, yeah. How many of those patients do you, are you really seeing in clinic that are super healthy or have X, Y, and Z and fit that enrollment criteria. And then you're trying to apply that to maybe a different patient who has other issues or is sicker. And mm-hmm. you're expecting that same outcome when we're just, you know, that's right. obviously not going to happen. Right. And so I think there's that issue too, is does the clinical trial population always translate to the real world? And I think more often than not, the answer is probably no. Right. In my field, it's, it's arguably even worse in mm-hmm. terms of things that get pushed through or tested because mm-hmm. There's no FDA for um, radiation devices. It's regulated by an entirely different governing body. So to get medical device approval for a radiation device doesn't require all these different phases of testing and, and safety monitoring and all that. So it's a you see these new technologies get implemented that we think are better, but they don't have to do trials to prove that. They can just say it. And they advertise and can say it, similar to what you were alluding mm-hmm. to with the drug companies. But it's, uh, it's very... It makes the patient's job really hard because you want to believe what you hear and see, but a lot of times, unfortunately, the window dressing. <laughs> it's a lot of window dressing, mm-hmm. but underneath is there's not a lot of not a lot of meat on that on that bone. I guess right, right. It's um, it's just I don't know. From my perspective, it's very frustrating. Ask questions. Lots of questions when you go meet with your doctor. In terms of, I'm not going to speak for you and your your you know, consultations with your patient about what the best radiation techniques are. But we know that, you know, you're going to be honest with them about, you know, what you think is going to lead to the best outcome. And that's driven by clinical trials, clinical data. So when it's, when you're getting something that's not driven by data, ask questions, you know, and patients may not know that. And I see that that's why that's frustrating. So we talked about, you know, Danny, you mentioned phase three trials. You're trying to say, is this drug better than the standard of care? Does adding it to the standard of care make it better in lieu of the standard of care? Can you explain what standard of care is? Yeah, so standard of care generally 
is saying at the time a trial is enrolling patients, what is the nationally accepted treatment for condition, whatever condition you're testing? So if you're doing a trial in early stage lymphoma, the standard of care would be what is at that time of the trial the nationally recognized treatment? What chemo, what drug, what combination of things? And so then in a phase three trial, you say, if we add this to that, or if we change this around to the standard of care, will that make outcomes better? But, you know, then the question is, well, a drug gets approved, Danny, you briefly touched on, sometimes they have to walk it back. And some of that is sometimes related yeah. to the nebulous phase four trial, which we probably mm-hmm. don't do enough of, but kind of briefly walk us through what a phase four trial is. Yeah, it's, it's generally looking at kind of real world scenarios after a drug's been approved and marketed to look and see if it actually does what it says it is supposed to do in the real life scenario. So they're supposed to look at kind of population data of people on the therapy that got approved, uh, usually by a phase three trial, and making sure the outcomes match up with with what was seen in the phase three data. So um, you're right, we don't see as much of that. Actually, I don't remember seeing as much of it in training either, but I, I'm seeing a little bit more of it recently come out um, and and some retractions being done on certain therapies. And there's also, also um, as far as drugs that get approved, there are contingencies on approvals. So just because a drug is FDA approved doesn't mean it's approved forever. If they see that in a phase four study that it's not matching up to the original data or if there's something new that comes out, because there are drugs that get approved after a phase two study, but there's contingencies that are done on on the drug to say, okay, if the, your data does not match up to what was seen in the phase two on the phase three study, then we're getting rid of your FDA approval. Do you want to go into that Alzheimer drug? The only thing I'll say is there, you know, there's a lot of controversy about expensive drugs getting approved without clear benefits to to all comers. What about an expensive drug getting approved when the vast majority of the people on the recommendation committee said not to approve it? Yes. What what, what, what would you say that is about? I would say that (laughs) there might have been outside influences is what I suppose (laughs) happened there. Interesting. For the record, Danny said that. Whoever's listening from... (laughs) From wherever. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it makes you you very skeptical about the process, right? Because, Just a tad. Because, you know, you have a, and this is for any drug that goes through the process of getting approval, is that if you have, you know, a drug that goes through all these trials and then is being voted upon in the FDA setting and you have, quote unquote, and there are experts on the FDA, and uh, but you have a majority voting against and the drug gets Proved, you know, it, it doesn't doesn't uh, translate to a lot of confidence in the community, and and then you you, I mean, I think one of the big issues that came up with a, a drug that gets approved in, in a scenario like that is, you then have the financial burden on the system, right? You have an approved drug that people are going to ask about and ask for because Alzheimer's is a common disease right i mean it's one of those and if the drug costs one dollar or a hundred thousand dollars it's it's my opinion disgusting that it can get approved for sure. most people say no and then to compound the error <laughs> is the fact that the drug is uh, i think i read fifty thousand dollars a month or a dose or something along those lines and it's obviously yeah. not a sustainable practice for 
what seems to be no benefit. Um, and it's a continuous med. I, I, I forgot the exact details of the dosing. It's not one or two doses. It's not one or two, um, right, right. And I think, I think those are the times where you really, at least as someone who believes in clinical research, right. really have to, you know, look at the way we do things sometimes and wonder, you know, could we be doing things better? I wonder historically how many times this has happened. And and I wouldn't be surprised if it never happened. Yeah, I, but, it, you would think it's you know, got to be pretty rare. Pretty rare, right. But I mean, yeah, this is, this is what, as you were getting to at the beginning of the episode, the accelerated approvals and how fast things are getting approved. And I think in general, they're doing it because it's not a malignant intent. I think they're right. doing it because they want to help people and getting things out faster right. to be... Right. But there needs to be a balance, and sometimes I think right now we've probably, you know, shifted, I think, the pedal too far to lack of oversight, lack of good endpoints, lack of strong data, versus maybe before we were probably maybe a little too conservative mm-hmm. and a little too long in some of these more deadly situations. So, you know, it's just it's trying right. to strike that, that balance, and yeah. I think hopefully things will, the pendulum will swing more towards the center. And it brings up what you talked about, what what outcomes are most important. And, and most people look at overall survival as the most important outcome. You know, people want to live longer um, who get a particular treatment, you know, when comparing it to a different standard uh, therapy. So if you have a drug that maybe showed in a phase two trial an overall survival benefit, of course, people are going to want that. But with the accelerated approvals, like you said, they review the data maybe into the phase three or, or even phase four setting. And, and if it didn't concur with the initial uh, data, you know, they have the right to pull the drug. I mean, I think it's it's a big financial burden on the system to keep a drug that's tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, when it doesn't have a clear benefit. What's the average time that it takes from like phase one to full approval? Well, it, I mean, it depends Recently? on the drug you're talking about, <laughs> right? Um, historically, years. What, what should, yeah, what should years, be the average time? Um, trials have have enrolled very quickly lately, and it depends on the trial, of course. It depends on what your disease you're studying. Are you studying a common disease or are you studying a rare disease? Because you could think rare diseases are not going to accrue on the trial very quickly. Um, but you have a common disease. You have a breast cancer, lung cancer, and a new drug. You're going to accrue pretty quickly on the, on the trial, and as, as as long as it's open in a in a wide variety of sites. So, um, but I think generally years, um, and it could be maybe as quickly as two to three to maybe longer. Yeah, I was going to say it probably for a lot of these things should be longer. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. historically it was probably pushing you know closer to a decade. Yeah. Um, right. To get things approved, I think with accelerated approval on some of the changes we've touched on, it's probably pushing closer to a couple years. So, yeah. you know, does it make sense to wait 15 years to get a drug approved? Probably not if it's obviously going to work. But does it make sense to rush everything out in one to two years and then backtrack later? You know, who kn- who knows what the right answer is? I mean, I yeah. think, but I think probably somewhere in the middle, as always, is the right answer. Yeah, I think highlighting diseases that do not have great drugs available that you know improve outcomes if you have disease x which is rare and deadly and you have a new drug you want to try to push it through the phase one process pretty quickly to to get the safety data and then move it on quickly and see if it's effective and that's the thing everything's in context yeah you know when you when you talking about a rare disease that there's only maybe a handful or hundreds of people in the world that have it Yes, the, the the bar is different for right. what you need to do. But when you're talking about very common things, 
very lucrative, potentially lucrative right. situations, breast cancer, prostate cancer, you know, na- you name the most common sites. There should be a little more scrutiny as to when you can add or subtract things because the, the excuse isn't you don't have the patients because there's thousands of people that right. would be willing to get on clinical trials. Mm-hmm. So you can't just say something's going to work and not and not actually prove it. And I think that's, you know, but, you, but to your point, yeah, it's, context is key. So, Danny... I've heard a rumor that while I think we did an okay job talking about research, Brenna, the listeners, everyone else involved wants more. They want someone who maybe has been doing this a little longer than we have. That's right, Rick. I think uh, we're going to have a part two, and I hear we're going to have a special guest. Uh, We're not going to drop any names right now, but this guest is very special to CSNF, and we're going to be very excited when he joins us, so really stay tuned. Or she. It could be a she. He or she. So stay tuned. We're excited about the episode and we know that it's going to be a good one. Thanks so much for coming back and joining us for another episode of Medical Minute. If you have any suggestions on things we should talk about, questions you'd like answered, or just want to say hi, please email us at medicalminute at csnf.us. And make sure you follow us on social media. Search Cancer Specialists of North Florida on Facebook and underscore CSNF on Twitter and Instagram soon to be TikTok. And as always, we appreciate you giving us a few minutes of your time, and we hope that you learned something today. And remember, when it comes to your health, stay informed. Ask questions. And and tune tune in next time. time.